Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today we had a very interesting podcast with Dr. Alan Bennett. Do you want to describe his current position? Yeah, he's a professor at the University of California at Davis. Uh, I was intrigued a few years ago when I read a report of some research that he's been involved in. They actually identified some corn down in Mexico that can fix nitrogen from the atmosphere through a symbiotic relationship with some bacteria, much like legumes do that we're all familiar with. It was definitely a fascinating conversation. Uh, We always like to interview people who are working on future technology, and I think uh, some of Dr. Bennett's research has the potential to really change the way that we produce corn here in the Midwest. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Dr. Bennett. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for joining us for a discussion here on the podcast today. To kick things off, would you tell our audience a little bit about your background and what you're currently involved in with your career? Sure, happy to. And uh, thanks for having me on this morning. It's a topic I'm always happy to talk about. I'm a plant biologist. I studied plant biology and plant physiology in in college and then later at uh, graduate school. Um, I've been a professor at the University of California, Davis, for many years. And in that role, I teach classes related to plant biology. I teach classes in biotechnology and also uh, classes in the ethics of biotechnology. Uh, I also do a lot of research. Uh, Professors in many universities have sort of a dual role, a role in teaching, but also a role in research. And that's certainly true at the University of California. A major part of my job is to is to do research, and a lot of what I've studied is related to fruit development, uh, the genetics, and how genetics determines the quality of fruit. Uh, but for about the last ten years, I've turned my attention to to a different problem, and that's a problem related to the association of bacteria uh, with plants, and asking the question whether uh, bacteria can contribute to the performance of plants, uh, particularly under stressful uh, environments. And I think that's the topic that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, that topic of the association of bacteria with plants, and, and we plan to talk today about specifically nitrogen, and we'll get into that in a minute, but are there other areas where bacteria provide nutrients or provide other benefits to plants? Or is it, you know, mainly we think of nitrogen often? Yeah, we think of nitrogen often, but actually there's a, a whole range of uh, uh, attributes that bacteria can uh, help plants. One is in the acquisition of uh, phosphorus, very important one. Bacteria also can contribute to uh, water availability under, under drought stress. Uh, they can also contribute uh, hormones to plants that can increase their growth. So there's a whole range of bacteria that are called uh, plant growth promoting bacteria. And they do this growth promotion in a variety of different ways, including acquisition of nitrogen. But there are a number of different ways that bacteria contribute to plants. So it's pretty new field of study. So we're still learning a lot about uh, what these bacteria do, which bacteria are important, uh, and importantly, whether it's a single bacteria that's providing these benefits or actually a community of bacteria. And increasingly, it looks like it's a community. 
Well, that's interesting. This is not a topic that I'm very well versed in. And you mentioned that there are instances where bacteria can increase the water availability to, to plants. What is the mechanism behind that? Well, bacteria can produce uh, a, a slime. And this is something that, that they produce and secrete. And this slime can coat the roots of, uh, of plant cells. And this slime prevents the loss of water from the plants itself, but can also attract what little water there is in the, uh, in the soil. So the bacteria can uh, contribute uh, actually part of the structure of the root and can help uh, water acquisition in that way. Wow, that's really interesting. Dr. Bennett, for some of our listeners, they may not know, you know why nitrogen is so important. For the sake of setting the stage for the rest of this conversation, could you describe the importance of nitrogen to modern production ag? Sure. So nitrogen is uh, super important. Nitrogen comprises about 2% uh, of our own bodies, of human bodies, uh, also about 2% of plants. So 2% doesn't sound like much. Uh, maybe we shouldn't worry about it. Turns out that that's a super important 2%. Uh, so nitrogen is a critical component of the major uh, molecules of life, a major component of DNA, of RNA uh, and proteins. So without nitrogen, there would be no life as we know it because life is really built on really two uh, major elements, nitrogen and, and of course carbon is super important as well. So life wouldn't exist and we would, uh, as we know it and uh, no food would exist either since crops uh, require nitrogen in order to form these uh, building blocks that make up the plant make up its genetics, make up the expression of its genes. So nitrogen is just a, a critical component of life, and it, it's really one of the major building blocks. How do farmers provide nitrogen for their crops currently? And for the past 50 to 100 years, there's you know certain crops that can't get enough nitrogen out of the soil, or there's not enough nitrogen in the soil to supply the crop's needs after a few years of growing a crop sometimes. So how is it that right. farmers provide that? Yeah, so there's a long story behind this. Um, so nitrogen is, is extremely abundant, actually. About 70% of the air that we breathe uh, is nitrogen. Um, so there's a lot of nitrogen uh, globally. Uh, the problem is the nitrogen in the, that's in the atmosphere, uh, plants and animals can't, can't use it. It's chemically locked up. So the nitrogen in the atmosphere, it's uh, actually the structure is two nitrogen molecules that are linked together and they're linked together by a very strong chemical bond and uh, plants and animals can't uh, break that bond and as a consequence uh, most uh, crop plants get their nitrogen from chemical uh, fertilizers now where do those chemical fertilizers come from so they come from a process that was uh, discovered invented a little over a century ago, and this uh, is based on a chemical reaction that was discovered by uh, German scientist Fritz uh, Haber, and he worked with an engineer named Bosch, and they developed something called the Haber-Bosch 
process. And this is a process that uses very high temperatures, very high pressures to take this nitrogen from, at, from the atmosphere that's locked up and converts it to ammonia. And ammonia is a form of nitrogen uh, that plants can use. And so most crop plants get their uh, nitrogen from these chemical fertilizers that are made by the Haber-Bosch process. I mean, this story gets super interesting. Uh, Fritz Haber uh, and Karl Bosch both won the Nobel Prize in different years uh, for creating this process. And currently about 2 billion people on the earth are able to be supported uh, because this uh, Haber-Bosch uh, process provides the ammonia for fertilizers that grows the crops that supports a third of the world's uh, population. So you'd think they'd be the most famous scientists in the world, and in fact, few people have ever heard of them. Part of the reason is because Fritz uh, Haber, after creating this very important uh, reaction to produce ammonia, uh, decided to get involved in chemical warfare, and the rest of his career was... Uh, rather uh, ignoble in terms of the kinds of work that he went on to do. So the biggest source of fertilizers for plants uh, that require nitrogen is from this Haber-Bosch process. And this nitrogen fertilizer, it's expensive in a couple of ways. Uh, one, it's just expensive. Uh, costs money to buy fertilizer. It's uh, a very significant input uh, to an agricultural production system. Turns out it's also uh, environmentally uh, costly. This Haber-Bosch process uses, uh, in order to produce these high temperatures and pressures, uses a lot of fossil fuel. Yeah, that uh, process alone is responsible for about 3% of the greenhouse gas emissions globally. And then um, if the fertilizer is not uh, applied in a rather precise way. It can leach into groundwaters and ultimately uh, leach into uh, uh, oceans where it uh, causes a lot of problems. So nitrogen fertilizer, it's a great thing because uh, without it, as I said, a large population of the world would not, uh, would not be fed, uh, but it's costly, costly financially and costly environmentally as well. That is a fascinating story, and it's really interesting that there's such a uh, impactful and important discovery in history that, like you mentioned, very few people know about, really. Yeah. It, it really had global implications. Uh, there's a great book about this also, but uh, the at the time, northern Chile was a major producer of nitrates, and there was a whole socioeconomic uh, uh, society built up around uh, the nitrate industry in northern Chile. As soon as this reaction was developed and was industrialized, uh, completely killed that industry and in Chile displaced a lot of uh, people there. So there were really global implications of this uh, process. In case any of your listeners are interested, the book is called The the Alchemy of Air, and it's quite interesting. I was just going to say, that's one of my favorite books. I love yeah, the historical it. context. Yep, I've, I've read that. So it's a majorly recommended book, mm -hmm. mandatory reading. <laughs> so obviously, nitrogen is very important, but there's a subset of plants that are able to actually, you mentioned that they're not, plants are not able to break that nitrogen bond and get nitrogen from the atmosphere. 
but there are plants that can get their nitrogen in a different way. Uh, and, and what is that, Dr. Bennett? Yeah. So there's a, a group of plants probably familiar to your listeners, and these are the legumes. Uh, crops like uh, soybeans be the biggest example, but also many others, peanuts, lentils uh, as well. These all belong to this family of legumes, and these legumes associate with a particular bacteria, rhizobium, uh, that's able to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and deliver it uh, to the plant. So uh, the rule of thumb is, you know, plants don't fix nitrogen, uh, but bacteria can. And in special associations, the bacteria living in the plant, in the case of legumes and nodules, uh, can fix nitrogen and, and deliver it to the plant and really fulfill uh, the complete nitrogen needs of these plants. Most of the other plants, including the major cereal crops in the world, <clears throat> do not uh, have this innovation. They don't associate with rhizobium and they don't fix nitrogen. So we have a, an example, uh, one that's well known to uh, farmers, certainly, and these are the legumes. And this would be a reason you might consider rotating crops, where one year you'd grow a legume uh, after you disc that under the nitrogen that it fixed is released to the soil. Next year you grow uh, corn or uh, something else which does not fix nitrogen, but it can benefit from the nitrogen that was fixed by the legume before. The real challenge that uh, scientists have been looking at for more than decades, even a hundred years, is uh, whether it would be possible for uh, cereal crops uh, like corn, uh, maybe wheat, maybe rice, uh, is there a way that cereal crops could also form some kind of association with bacteria in order to fix their own nitrogen? So it's a long-standing question. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So obviously your research is centered around this. Can you describe the origin or the discovery of this this corn or uh, the, the corn that's able to fix nitrogen? Where did it happen? Yeah. Uh, maybe just describe your discovery. Sure. We were also interested in this question. Uh, again, it's not a new question. We didn't make up the question, but we did work on it. And so we had uh, an idea. And the idea was that corn originated in Mexico. And, and in Mexico, there are... Uh, in many small communities, isolated populations of corn uh, that have been isolated for several thousand years. Uh, so they're evolving along their own pathway, independent of all the other corn populations. And what we also know about some of these communities is they don't have access to a lot of uh, agricultural technology. They don't have access to fertilizers. Uh, they don't have access to certain kinds of pesticides, disease control. So the idea was that maybe um, because they've been uh, growing and evolving for thousands of years in the absence of fertilizers, maybe they've developed some of these associations with bacteria uh, to fix their own nitrogen. And so we spent some time in Mexico and specifically in a re, re, uh, region called the Sierra Mije. And this is a region that uh, has a robust agricultural system that is completely centered uh, around corn. Uh, so in these communities, each family 
has their own plot, they grow corn, and this provides the majority uh, of their food for the entire, for the entire year. Uh, they're also uh, quite isolated. Until recently, many of these communities were not linked to major cities uh, by roads. That's changing quickly now. But the particular region we were in is uh, in the state of Oaxaca. Um, and we would uh, go and start our journeys uh, from the city of Oaxaca, where, you know, it's a regular city, the airport, we could fly in there, hotels to stay. Uh, but then we would drive for many hours around Oaxaca, visiting some of these uh, different communities. And uh, we did visit one community that really made us very curious. Uh, the corn that grows there is uh, quite unusual. It grows to a height of about 15 or 16 feet. Uh, and it uh, has aerial roots. And so these are roots that are above ground. Uh, if you look at a cornstalk, a cornstalk has several nodes or regions. From each one of these nodes, these aerial roots came out. And you see these a little bit on conventional corn, uh, but these were greatly elaborated and exaggerated in this kind of corn. And they secreted uh, this really thick gel. And so we started uh, looking at this. And what we quickly determined was that uh, within this gel, uh, there were bacteria that were able to fix nitrogen. And so this gel provided an environment that attracted a particular group of bacteria and it provided an environment that was conducive to the fixation of nitrogen. And, and one of the things we know about uh, fixing nitrogen uh, is that it requires a few things. One is it requires the bacteria who, that carry it out require a source of sugars. This provides uh, energy to drive that reaction of nitrogen fixation. It also requires a low uh, oxygen environment. And what we found is that this uh, mucilage or gel provided that. It provided uh, a rich source of sugars, also a very low oxygen uh, environment. And so these bacteria were able to uh, fix nitrogen. Uh, that nitrogen was released as ammonia or some related compounds. And the plant was apparently able to take this up because at the end of uh, the growth period, uh, we could uh, analyze that plant and determine that uh, up to 80% of the nitrogen uh, that made up the proteins, DNA and RNA uh, in that corn plant uh, was derived uh, from the atmosphere, not from the soil. And there are certain types of uh, assays that rely on uh, certain type of uh, stable isotopes of nitrogen that allows you to determine whether the nitrogen came from the air or from the soil. So in these plants, up to 80%, uh, we determined was coming uh, from the air. So this was a pretty astounding wow. um, result. And uh, of course, we were surprised to find it, but it did you know, support this idea or this hypothesis uh, that we had uh, that uh, certain mechanisms had evolved over time in these uh, land races. 80 percent is a is an astounding amount of the of the nitrogen that is able to get from the atmosphere. When we talk about aerial roots, I'm just curious, is there any other precedent for or any other plants that receive their nutrients from the atmosphere and is that 
done in the same way? Well, now that we, now that we know about this uh, potential mechanism, we've started to uh, look around. And it turns out that uh, sorghum also has similar uh, aerial roots. And uh, a collaborator of mine who's at the University of Wisconsin uh, has now done some evaluation of sorghum. And he's uh, mentioned to me that, uh, that he observes a similar mechanism in sorghum. Um, we think it's uh, possible just based on some visual observations that certain relatives of wheat uh, may uh, carry out a similar process. So we'd like to uh, see how far we can uh, extend this. It's what we've seen is greatly exaggerated um, and it's in, and it allowed us to uh, determine what this mechanism was. Uh, but it's quite possible that uh, even though it's harder, it would be much harder to detect, it's possible that uh, underground roots may uh, have a similar kind of secretion and may even carry out a similar uh, similar kind of process. So, so we're beginning to look uh, further to see whether this may be a more general process and we just haven't uh, appreciated it before because it you know, took this example where it was greatly exaggerated uh, that allowed us to do these uh, experiments and, and identify this process. This is fascinating. So is, is the secretion or bacteria, are they, is it limited at all by environment? So like being in a tropical, I'm assuming tropical area um, and like a Mexico type situation, is there any limitations moving that stuff to like the Midwest, for instance, where we have a different climate? Yeah, well, we we have grown uh, this corn in Madison, Wisconsin, and in Davis, California, where it thrives naturally. It's a very wet environment, uh, has a lot of uh, mist that rises up into these fields. So in order to see similar results here, we uh, have had to uh, put up misters that would mist these aerial roots and stuff. Uh, but it does seem to acquire the same uh, types of microbes uh, here as it does in its native uh, environment in Mexico, but it certainly uh, wouldn't do well in Iowa. As I said, it's 15 or 16 feet tall. It does not grow at high density. It uh, also takes about eight months to mature, which is uh, nearly, you know, three times the amount of time. A little long. <laughs> conventional corn, right. So, no, this corn would not do well in Iowa, but of course the idea is that we may be able to identify the genetic determinants uh, that allow this corn to associate uh, with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And if we can identify the genetic determinants, we may be able to transfer uh, those through traditional uh, breeding into more conventional corn. And so that's the kind of research that we're uh, starting to do now. Our plan is, uh, because as you mentioned, this uh, corn is thriving in a somewhat tropical environment. Uh, we'll uh, be doing those experiments in Hawaii where there are uh, uh, nurseries that would probably be uh, appropriately, we haven't tried it yet, but we think would be appropriate for uh, growing and evaluating uh, this corn and some of its uh, progeny. So you mentioned conventional breeding to bring those traits in conventionally through traditional plant breeding process. Would there be any hope to bring that in through biotech 
methodology? You know, it, it's possible. It, you know, of course, depends on how uh, complex this trait is. Uh, you know, we don't know if it's one gene or, or 100 genes uh, that confer this trait. Um, we actually think it's probably a fairly small number. If it is a small number, yeah, there may be biotech strategies, either through transgenes or potentially even genome editing to bring in this trait. It'd be much more efficient to do it that way. As you can imagine, this corn is really nothing like... Uh, conventional corn. So from a breeding perspective, you know, it would take many generations to, uh, uh, to transfer this trait. So there's hope, but we don't know, we don't know enough yet. So I have a little question. Um, as a bioethicist also, uh, would that be considered a transgene if it came from a uh, uh, very related uh, corn species? Yeah, you know, it depends on what else comes in with it, I think. Um, so as you know, uh, when you bring in a transgene, you're usually bringing in other uh, elements as well. Um, so if you could introduce this in a way that uh, brought in only uh, that maize uh, gene without any, you know, associated uh, markers or or border sequences or things like that, um, you know, then it's arguable and uh, that, that it's not a transgene. It's but it, this is a question that's really you know, I think it's a regulatory sure. uh, question and, and uh, not necessarily a scientific one. But I think increasingly, uh, the regulatory environment uh, might, might accept that and not regulate it. Would it be possible to create a product that could be applied um, that could also attract nitrogen-fixing bacteria, which would in turn also reduce the need for soil nitrogen? Sure, that's... Uh, uh, very possible. The, the you know the mucilage, uh, this gel that I uh, talked about, um, it's made out of uh, uh, carbohydrate, and it's a complex carbohydrate. We and we know its uh, structure in great detail now. It's very unusual, um, but we've uh, we've thought that this carbohydrate may you know may be that attractant. You need a couple of things. Uh, one is you need some kind of signal molecules, whether it's a carbohydrate or, or something else, to attract the appropriate uh, uh, microbes. Um, you also then need to support certain uh, functionalities. And one of those functionalities is, as I mentioned before, uh, deliver some of these simple sugars uh, to the bacteria as a source of energy. Uh, also to deliver the potential of a low oxygen uh, environment in order to house those microbes. Um, so I think uh, so I think there's merit to that idea. It may may be feasible in order to. I'm not sure if it'd really be practical to apply this in the quantity that may be needed. But uh, if one could identify the genetic determinants of the mucilage secretion, that would be potentially a very simple. Uh, trait, a uh, single gene, maybe even a single uh, changes in the DNA that would activate uh, those genes. So this may be much simpler. We know that conventional corn uh, secretes a similar kind of uh, gel in their underground roots, but just at a much, uh, much lower level. So it may be feasible just to uh, enhance uh, focusing specifically on that gel, and that might get at the same thing that uh, that you're suggesting, uh, that this single secretion or 
uh, gel uh, may be the factor that attracts and then harbors uh, the nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So I'm just curious. I, I mean, it's probably not, um, as you mentioned, there'd be a lot of logistical challenges with even if you could create a product like this to apply it onto the field. And maybe you don't have this answer, but do conventional corn plants that are conventionally grown across the U.S., would they have the ability to take in nutrients in the in the brace roots or the aerial roots that are, you know, less pronounced than the corn you're studying? But do they have the ability to take in nutrients through those? You know, we don't know the answer to that. Um, it's clear that in the Mexican land race that, that we studied, uh, that these aerial roots were capable of uh, taking in the nitrogen. It's an uh, interesting question. When we first started uh, studying this, we expected that this uh, gel would be you know, full of nitrogen-containing compounds. Uh, and when we looked at it, it turns out that it's barely detectable. And what it turns out is that these aerial roots are able to very rapidly absorb the uh, uh, nitrogen-containing compounds that are released from the bacteria. And that's sort of a key element. And so your question is right on spot. Um, that's part of the overall process and mechanism uh, that the, the bacteria is doing the, uh, the heavy lifting of fixing nitrogen. Uh, but the plant also has to have the capacity to uh, effectively take that up uh, and incorporate uh, that nitrogen into its, uh, you know, into its own growth and development. Obviously, this is a topic that there's a lot left to learn about. Are we, I mean, would you foresee commercially available products at any time in the near future? Or is this something that's pretty far down the road? Well, I think... Uh, you know, it's maybe five years would be too aggressive, um, but certainly in 10, this will be available and it, it will, and it may be available as a result of our research or someone else's uh, because there's tremendous investment going on right now uh, in this uh, area of cereal crops association with nitrogen fixing uh, microbes or with the development of even internalized cellular machinery to fix uh, nitrogen. So there's um, uh, the Gates Foundation as well as a number of companies are uh, pouring a lot of money into this uh, area of research. And so uh, I'm pretty confident that certainly within 10 years, we will see the commercial uh, release of cereal crops and almost certainly corn will be the lead uh, crop that has some ability to fix its own nitrogen. It's just uh, there's there's too much activity in the area, and you know this was the the dream in 1980 when biotechnology was first developing that you know we'll just uh, uh, transfer genes from a legume to maize and then they'll fix nitrogen. And um, of course, at that time, uh, we just didn't know enough uh, to successfully achieve that. But we do know <laughs> a lot uh, now, 30 years, 30, 40 years later, um, that I think we're just on the, on the verge of uh, successfully developing uh, cereal crops that have some capability to fix their own nitrogen. And it may not be 80%, but you know, maybe they deliver 25% of their uh, own nitrogen. This would still would have major economic value if it displaced that quantity 
of the applied nitrogen fertilizers. Yeah, that definitely would make a major impact. And that, that timeline is much, uh, much more compressed than I thought you were going to say. I thought you were maybe going to say it was, you know, decades out, but that sounds like a, it may be on the horizon. Just a quick question about the, um, when we talk about the value of a product like this, potential value, you know, there might be some who would say the indigenous people are being exploited. You know, what would you say to that? Or what are the, the plans for sharing some of the value of this with the people of the Sierra Mije? Yeah, that is, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, certainly, the indigenous population of the Sierra Mije, uh, they have uh, maintained and selected this corn for thousands of years and maintained it. So it really falls in this, uh, in what we refer to as traditional knowledge. Um, and it's not only their knowledge, it's their corn, you know, and these genetic resources belong to them. So we, we worked closely with communities in the Sierra Mije, and we established legal agreements with the Mexican government. And these agreements are called uh, access and benefit sharing agreements. Uh, there's something called the Nagoya Protocol, uh, which is part of the Convention on Biodiversity, uh, which ensures indigenous communities and governments uh, that they own the genetic resources and that if uh, anyone extracts value from those genetic resources, that benefit needs to be shared. Uh, so we have those agreements in place. There was a uh, director of biosafety and biodiversity at Mexico's environmental agency. Her name is Alejandra Barrios. Uh, she has gone on record with uh, actually the Atlantic as re repeatedly praising the approach uh, saying that these agreements that we put in place were great work and a win-win uh, situation. So these were one of the first uh, agreements of its kind that was issued by the Mexican government. Um, this whole concept of the Nagoya Protocol is, uh, it's been around for a while, but it's only recently being implemented. And we believe this was the first uh, certificate that was issued by the Mexican government. So this whole area is uh, super important. We, we think we did it the right way. Um, and any uh, benefits uh, are shared uh, with the community. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. So usually, Dr. Bennett, we wrap these podcasts up with kind of asking our interviewees what they're most excited about, about the future of ag. And just, I mean, to be frank, chatting with you seems like we're chatting from someone off of uh, the set of Star Wars or Star Trek or something, just because you're obviously working on su such uh, future-focused uh, uh, work. But I guess with that being said, is there any other work that you're involved with or any other benefits uh, to this research that you're most excited about the future of agriculture? Well, I think I obviously I'm excited about what we're doing. And I think this whole area of the uh, crop microbiome is, uh, is very important, exciting, and it's happening now. But, uh, you know, I think there's so many advances going on right now that are really taking advantages of cutting edge technologies, whether uh, remote sensing or artificial intelligence, that's really advancing the just the practices uh, of agronomy, how crops are grown, how particularly nutrient resources are, are used. So everything that I see tells me that we are going to see this sustainable intensification of agriculture and it's not only exciting it's it's essential uh, but to me the 
prospects look very bright, um, that we are going to continue to intensify agriculture in a sustainable way uh, and feed the planet. And of course, that's, that's the uh, sort of big question that's out there uh, in the next 30 years. Will agriculture be able to step up to the plate and the requirements that this growing uh, population is going to demand? And, you know, I just see a lot of, uh, a lot of promise in the future. Well, Dr. Bennett, this has been a, a really interesting conversation. I know a few years, a couple of years ago, when I first got wind of your research, I thought that's a really fascinating topic and really has a lot of potential for the future. So we definitely appreciate your time today. Um, you've been more than generous with it. If our listeners want to learn anything more about this topic or, you know, follow some of your work, uh, do you have an online presence where they can learn more about it or, or do you have any recommendations of, of where people can go to learn more? Uh, well, they can, uh, they can go to my uh, laboratory website, bennettlab, one word, dot ucdavis.edu. There's also a really good article that appeared in the, the Atlantic and that's the Atlantic is of course a major uh, national publication. It uh, appeared in uh, August 9th, uh, 2018, so a couple of years ago, but it was, it's a really good uh, summary that's very accessible uh, to, to anyone who wants to read a little bit more about that. So I would recommend that article. I think uh, the link to that may be posted on my laboratory website. And we'll also link to both of those in the show notes. So, okay. Uh, Great. Thanks again for your time. Okay. It was good talking to you guys. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.